Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we're joined by community pastor Ian Simpkins as we begin a brand new series, Turn the Page. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. And now also on Monday nights at 6.30 p.m. We hope to see you there. When it comes to the Bible, I think a lot of us are probably intimidated by this book. This book that is actually a collection of books. For some of us, we, might, we may find it overwhelming. We may find it confusing. Some people use this book to drive their viewpoints home. Some use this book to shame and guilt other people. Some maybe rarely read it. Some may see it as irrelevant. Some are in the habit of saying things like, the Bible clearly says... Regardless of your relationship with this book, it is still the best-selling book of all time. Of all time. And in this book, when we meditate on this word, when we spend time with these pages, that God who spoke creation into existence becomes more clear to us. We grow in intimacy with that God who made us and loves us with an unthinkable love. So we're going to embark on a journey. It's an 11-week journey together called Turn the Page. Now, Turn the Page really has two meanings. The first maybe is obvious. We're going to actually turn the pages of this Bible together. We're going to start from the very beginning. And for 11 weeks, we're going to journey through the entire Bible. But Turn the Page also is an idiom. The phrase Turn the Page means to make a fresh start. And that's our prayer for this series. Not just that we simply get a better understanding about what these words mean, not just a cerebral understanding of how to apply it, but to how to actually have our lives changed by this God. Our prayer is not arrogant certainty in our systems, but a humble approach that God would actually speak to us and transform us from the inside out. Because here's the thing. One, every single one of us has a theology. Every single one of us, if you consider yourself a church person or not, a religious person or not, we all have ways we think about God or whether we think he exists or not, how we got here, why we're here, and what happens after we're gone. But number two, every theology is incomplete, full stop. There's no church or country or language or denomination that has fully cornered the fullness of who God is. It's easy for us to think that we've got it figured out, but every theology, this side of heaven, is incomplete. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And so many of us, we see the Bible through our worldviews. Worldviews are like lenses. They're like frames. We don't think about seeing through them, but we always are. We don't become aware of them until something fogs them up a little bit. And that's That's another part of my prayer, is that in this series, God would maybe fog up our glasses a little bit, help us to see more deeply what it is that he's saying and doing in these pages. So maybe it would be helpful for us to approach this series, to approach theology both as an art and a science. Now, as an art, you think about a a painter. You never hear a painter say, uh, I have painted the definitive landscape. Everyone else can stop painting landscapes from here on out, right? If a painter understands 
that landscapes can invoke multiple emotions. How much more true must that be of the creator of all landscapes? And like art, science is constantly reworking and challenging, proposing new conclusions. We, we should have a posture of humility as we take this dive together. Because I believe that God wants to do something remarkable in and through every single one of us. So together, why don't we go back to the very beginning, back to page one. The Bible is actually a library. It's a collection of 66 books written by 40 divinely inspired authors over a span of 1,600 years. These books are divided into two major sections. There are 39 books in the first section of the Bible called the Old Testament and 27 books in the second section called the New Testament. The amazing thing about these 66 books is that together they tell one continuous story, the story of God and His people. As you turn the pages of the Bible, you'll find that the books aren't necessarily organized in chronological order. For example, the book of Job tells a story of a man who suffered immensely, yet refused to turn his back on God. Though Job is the 18th book in the Bible, scholars believe it was one of the earliest books written, and that Job most likely lived in the same time period covered in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. As we turn the pages together over the next 11 weeks, we'll help you understand how each of these 66 books fits into the overall story of God and His people. And we'll also discover how that story is intricately connected to our story. The Bible isn't meant to just be read. It's meant to be experienced. The words on these pages have the power to transform our lives. To get started on this journey, let's start on the very first page. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, we find the stories of creation, Noah's Ark, and the Tower of Babel. We are introduced to God as the creator of the universe, as well as the very first people, Adam and Eve. These first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis cover a period we're going to call the beginnings. So we're starting, I think, at the appropriate place, the beginning. And the reason for that is because how we tell the story of our lives and the lives of the world will intimately affect the life that we live. How you begin the story has massive implications for the kind of lives that we live. So, for example, uh, in Genesis here, in chapter 1, we're given a, a creation account of a God who is creating. But what you may not realize is that there are other creation accounts that were written well before this one. In fact, most of these creation accounts... They include this idea that the world came into existence as a result of a massive, epic, cosmic battle. Two gods were duking it out, and then the world came into existence as a result of that. But in this Genesis account, though, we're given a very different picture. It's a picture of a loving father who creates for the love and joy of creating. It's a God who is an entrepreneur, who is loving, who is intimate, who is close but before we go any further, though, I think it's worth stating that these first 11 chapters in Genesis are among some of the most debated scriptures in the entire Bible. 
So I say that so that we all can kind of assume a, a gentle, humble posture with one another. You, you may leave here still disagreeing on this, and that's okay. Scholars for centuries have debated about what exactly is happening in these first 11 chapters. And so we're going to assume with a humble, open-handed posture that God will speak to us and move through us as we take this deep dive into the Bible. So in Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating, not as a result of a battle, but out of a, a posture of love and joy and intimacy. And he's stepping back and he's saying over and over again that it's good. And then it says on the seventh day, he rested. And you may not know this, but in Hebrew literature, uh, the number seven was the number of completeness, of wholeness, uh, a word that we would use called shalom. And so right at the beginning, the, the writer is making something really, really important, clear to its readers. That rest is as important to this story as the six days prior. It's included in this wholeness, in this shalom, in this completeness. Six days he creates, but on the seventh he rests. Now I find it fascinating that humans are made on day six, and the first full day they have is a day of what? Rest. Rest in the Genesis account is not as a result of burning the candle at both ends and then just collapsing at the end of the week. It's beginning first with a posture of rest when these humans hadn't done anything to earn or deserve it. Right in these first few verses, we see a picture of a God who loves and pursues and embraces, a God who is close and intimate. Now in Genesis 1.26 uh, we see a really, really important passage. It reads, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We call this the Imago Dei. What that means is that every human you've ever met is made in the image and likeness of this loving God. Not just the people in this room or the people that are attending a church sometime this weekend. Every person you've ever met, even the guy in the cubicle over that stomps on your last nerve, Right? That ant that you only want to see at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Every human being you've ever met is made in the image and likeness of this loving, creative, joyful, generous God. Now in this first chapter, God steps back seven times and declares it is good. It is good. So there's that number seven again, and uh, he creates and he steps back. And I almost imagine it's a little like braggadocious, right? Like in the Trinity, he's like saying to himself, like, man, that's pretty good. Way to go. High five, Trinity. Yeah. And then, you know, stars are made or something. I don't. He steps back seven times though in this first chapter alone and says, yeah, that's, that's good. It's as if the writer wants us to know that God knows what is good. Not only does God know what is good, but he's intent on providing it for us. But then in chapter two, we see the first introduction of God saying it's not good. And that, of course, is when Nickelback was created. Um, <laughs> it's been a couple of weeks since I made a Nickelback joke. No, God sees Adam by himself and for the first time steps back and says, no, that's not good. That's not shalom. That's, that's, not, that's not right. And this, this isn't just like a, a marriage piece. This, this is something about how we're wired deep down ontologically, every single one of us. We were not built, we were not created to do life in isolation, to live life by ourselves alone. We were created for community. We were created for connection. It's hardwired into who we are. And it also shows that God not only knows what is good, but he also knows what is not good, Right? God declares and identifies what is good, but also what is not good. 
So he creates Eve and they live in this beautiful, perfect harmony. Now, if the story stopped there, there'd be no page turning, right? Like we would still be just in perfect relationship, total harmony. We'd all be walking around naked, right? Um, did it just get weird in the room? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But as many of us know, the story doesn't stop there. In Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character, the serpent. Here's what it reads. More crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now this is crafty, not like in a needle stitch crochet kind of way. He's not into like making photo albums. Crafty, deceptive, perverse. Describes the serpent this way as one who's like plotting. One who's um, intentionally trying to throw people off course. To break shalom. To bring pain and heartache. And then the serpent asks this important question. Speaking to Eve, he said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that from any tree, Eve? Is that really how it went down? In this moment, this serpent asks Eve a question that challenges everything that she's ever known. Anyone ever had that experience before? Somebody asks a question maybe that you've never been asked before and it begins to sort of apply pressure to a thing that you've held your entire life, that you've believed, that you've built your life upon. In this moment, everything that Eve knows is challenged. And here's how she responds. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So Eve's, Eve's got the right answer, right? Like she checked the Sunday school box. She passes with flying colors. But what, wouldn't we all love like that kind of clarity from God? She's been told directly by God, you can eat any of these fruits from any of these trees, but not that one. Like wouldn't that be amazing like in our lives today if God gave that kind of clarity? Like don't, don't many of us pursue that? Like you're thinking of buying a house and God's like, not that one, nope. You're thinking of applying for a job, and God's like, not that one, Uh uh-uh. You're thinking of dating someone, and God's like, definitely not that one. No. (laughs) Run as far as you can from that one. Well, Eve actually has this. God said you can eat from any tree in the garden, just not that one. And And I get asked this question a lot, like, then why put the tree in the garden at all, right? Why would God put that tree in the garden? And we could answer that a number of different ways, but I would say this. I think the tree is in the garden to drill into us from the very beginning that obedience to God is where identity, purpose, love, and joy comes from. Obedience to God is where the source of life actually is. The tree is there to remind us that God is the source of life, purpose, meaning, and love. Not the things that we so often pursue. So Eve's been told, but then she starts to question God, right? This question starts to nag at her. She starts, to, she starts to wonder if maybe the serpent doesn't have a point. Did God really say? And I gotta be honest, I think we're still grappling with that question today. Have you ever made a decision that like in your heart of hearts, you, you know is like out of step for like what God has for your life or, or what would be right in this moment? And we start to question like, is that, is that really the best? Like we start to question, did God really say, is he really good? And I think it's here that we see a really important truth, that sin did not begin with an action, it began with a belief. 
It didn't begin with her doing something. It began with entertaining this idea, is God really good and can I really trust him? And I'll be honest, these are questions that I've asked myself. The the serpent is asking a question that maybe a lot of us have grappled with. Is he really good and can I actually trust? I think so much of our mistakes are rooted in a disbelief that God actually has my best in mind. Has anyone here ever felt that way? That, that God's actually withholding from you. He's trying to keep you from having fun to living life to the fullest. And that's the question that the serpent is sort of whispering in this moment. No, no, no. He's trying to hold you back. No, he's trying to keep you from experiencing true life. Did God really say that? Can you really trust him? Is he really good? And so Eve is tempted. And she gives in in verse 6. We see this. She saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Now, often this scene is depicted as an apple, right? But like, can we be honest? Who's ever been tempted by an apple before, right? <laughs> like, no, put some caramel on it, we can talk. But it's probably not an apple. But either way, this, this isn't ultimately about fruit. It describes the fruit this way. As desirable for gaining, what's the word? Ah, wisdom. Not, now we're getting somewhere. Desirable for gaining wisdom. The, the temptation isn't like, well, yeah, I'm, I really have a hankering for apple right now. The temptation is, oh, I, I can begin to define for myself then what is good and not good. I, I will be like God. So Eve takes a bite. She hands it to her husband, who I can only imagine said, ooh, shiny, and he took a bite as well. And we call this in theology the fall. Now, the fall is not just a breaking of a rule. It's also the breaking of a relationship. It's not just a breaking of a rule. I told you not to, and you did it anyway. It's a breaking of a relationship. It's doubting that God is actually good and is actually trustworthy. It's choosing our own path, which I think we've all done, right? We've decided my wisdom, my insight is greater to that than God's. And we see that depicted here. In Genesis. Now, when we trust in something other than God to define what is good or not good, one way to identify that is to call it idolatry. Now, I know that when we say words like idolatry, a lot of us are like, nope, I'm I'm good there. I don't have any golden statues in my house whatsoever. I'm I'm good. But maybe a more helpful way to think about idolatry is to finish this sentence. How would you finish this sentence? Life only has meaning if. Ask yourself that. How would you answer that question? How would you complete that sentence? Life only has meaning if what? If I achieve a a certain level of success, if I expand my social circle to a certain level, if my parents or my children are proud of me, if I make X amount of dollars, whatever whatever you fill in that blank with is likely your functioning idol. Life only has meaning if. Maybe another way to say it is, God, I'll serve you when. Once you give me this thing, once you do that thing, that will reveal what really it is that you're worshiping. Life only has meaning if is a really, really telling question. So Adam and Eve in this moment, they break shalom, they break relationship. And when they do, their eyes are opened. They realize they're naked They're filled with shame and they hide. And I think a lot of us have been hiding ever since. 
They see their brokenness. They see their shame. And they hide. And sometimes religion is the best place to hide from God. Can we track him? My, my guess is that plenty of us in this room, we walked through those doors with a smile on our face, but with a devastated heart. And we've been taught, we believe that I, I can't bother God with that. I, I can't let that part of my heart be known. Nothing could be further from the truth. God created us for intimacy, for relationship. And like Adam and Eve, we become aware of our shame. And rather than running to the Father, we run away from him. And we hide. And I think maybe one of the most heartbreaking verses in the entire Bible is this one. It's God saying, where are you? Where are you? Now, I, I don't think this is like angry CEO God, like, where are you? I also don't think it's like whimsical hide-and-seek God, like, where are you? <laughs> I don't think it's that either. I don't think he's playing games with them. But what I think he's actually asking, though, because I believe that God knows their physical location in this moment. He's aware of where they are physically, I mean, you're going to hide in the trees from the creator of the trees. That's not going to go well for you. No, no, no. I, I think what God is asking in this moment is asking each of us is, where is your heart? Where is your heart? He's saying, where are you? Why, why are you not with me? I built you. I created you for, for this. And you're hiding. Maybe that's the question that we need to wrestle with this morning. Where are you? How are you hiding? In what ways, if you believed a lie that God can't be troubled with your brokenness, nothing could be further from the truth. God pursues us in our brokenness. And in our shame and doubt and insecurity and fear, he invites us not to run away from him, but to run first and foremost into his arms. God is asking Adam and Eve, where is your heart. Now, if you're a parent, you're probably pretty familiar with this, right? Asking questions that you already know the answers to. Like, did you hit your brother? You know, one's got a black eye. It's really obvious, you know. Or did you pour the milk all over the floor, right? Or are you eating dirt? Like, it's, it's, an, it's an answer we already have. But we're asking it to reveal something about the nature of what's happened. And God asking, where are you I think it's to reveal to them, I already know where you are. Do you know where you are? Where is your heart? Maybe another way to put it, he's asking them, now, now that you've eaten, are you the person you thought you'd become? Choosing your own path, your own way, did that deliver what you thought it would deliver? Did, did choosing this, this own path to, to really seek life apart from the giver of life, the source of life, to seek love apart from the source of love. He's asking, did you become the person that you thought you'd become by living your life this way? Did it pan out the way that you thought it would? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been there, right? The good news is that God is waiting with open arms to embrace us again. So he confronts them. They're hiding in the trees. Now, look at how Adam responds here. The man said, uh, the woman that you put here with me, so he doesn't even use her name at this point, so ladies, how well would that go for you? Like, the woman, excuse me? Uh, <laughs> I have a name. Uh, the, 
the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. So he's, he's pretty much saying the blame is either you, God, or that woman, right? Notice the shift in language. There's not a lot of we language here. It's, it's you and her. And this is what sin does. It divides us. It makes us point fingers, doesn't it? I mean, if anything, God, you're, you're the one to blame. You put her here. I was fine just watching Sports Center. I didn't need a woman. Or I, I, things were cool. Things were fine. No, 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 you put her here. And if it's not on you because you're God and you maybe get a, you know, you get an out, like it's her fault, she bit first. Who says stuff like that? Children say stuff like that. She bit first, she gave it to me, so I'm, my, my hands are clean. This is what fracturing shalom can do to us. It pits us against each other. Mother Teresa once said, if we don't have any peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. But shalom, that fracturing of wholeness, of completeness, man, that'll turn us against each other. And we've seen it, haven't we? We're in the midst of a lot of that right now. So turning back on the good that God has planned for us is not just a breaking of a, a law or a rule or an idea. I think it's much more profound than that. N.T. Wright, I think, put it perfectly He said, sin is not simply the breaking of a law, it's the missing of an opportunity. And I I love that. It's so much more than simply like missing the bullseye of a target or some kind of debt that you could never repay, although those are um, helpful illustrations. It's not just the breaking of a law or a rule or an idea, it's the missing of an opportunity. Part of what I think breaks God's heart most is when he sees us choosing toxic decisions because he knows we're missing out on so much more of the fullness that he's built us for that he's hardwired us for. It's, it's not just the fracturing of a law. It's, it's the missing of an opportunity. So I want to ask, what, what is it that you're chasing after that maybe you're missing God's best for you today? What's, what's the good that you're deciding? What's, what's the thing that has you a little fixated right now? That has you a little distracted on what maybe God has in store for you? I think today we can make a fresh start. There's no shame because I've been there myself. I can look back at my life and with painful clarity see when I chose my own way over God's. No shame, no guilt. We can together turn the page. We can together make a fresh start. I mentioned earlier this is gonna be an 11-week series and our time together here, like we'll, we'll only be able to scratch the surface. But we wanted to provide a lot of resources so that we could dive deeper into what it is that we're talking about here. And I cannot encourage you enough. We've put together a turn-the-page Bible experience. You can get this through the community app. If you don't have the community app yet, I highly encourage you to download it. You can get it through the website. And here's what's gonna be included. We have daily readings like we normally do, but we've also recorded this podcast. You can get the readings in audio version. We've also interviewed a bunch of community staff people. So like twice a week, there's gonna be interviews with community staff people that drill down even further into some of the stuff that we talked about on Sunday. I honestly think this next 11 weeks, is gonna like change the DNA of who we are as a church. I think this is gonna be absolutely transformative because how, how can we know the God of the Bible if we don't actually spend time in his word? I believe that God wants to speak to us through these pages in the context of community. Please, I can't encourage you enough. Sign up for the reading plan. Pull out your phone right now if you need to. I won't be offended. I think when we actually dive into his word, doubts, questions and all, and say, God, would, would you speak to me that he absolutely will?
that he wants to, that he's pursuing us, that he's patient with us. He says, I know that you're busy. I know that you're distracted. But this will be so worth the time. Fast forward a little bit. Jesus once said these words to his disciples. He said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. I love that. We'll make our home with him. Not just visit once in a while. Not just send emails on holidays. And I will make my home with you. But we can't obey. We can't align ourselves. We, we can't do that if we don't actually know what it is that he teaches. The, the story of this book is so much more than just the removal of sin. So many of us were taught that. This book is so much more than just the removal of sin. It's the restoration of shalom. He wants to heal broken hearts. He wants to heal the things that weigh down on us. He wants to speak life and truth and mercy, I believe, into every single one of us. He wants to actually make his home with us. And I think it starts here. I think it starts by a humble posture saying, God, I don't have it all figured out. I still got plenty of questions, but I need you, God. Would you do a work in my life that only you can do? And friends, I wholeheartedly believe that he will. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for loving us well beyond what we could ever dream of. For those of us in this room right now who are maybe feeling a little brokenhearted, God, would you speak life and truth and grace and mercy to them? For those of us who feel that pursuit of the question, who, where are you, God? Would we be honest about where we actually are? Would you give us the courage to put one foot in front of the next in pursuit of you, your truth, your word, your spirit? And God, would you do a work in our midst that blows our minds, not for our glory, but for yours? God, we thank you and we love you. And we pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.